The line, it is drawn. The curse, it is cast. The slow one now will later be fast. As the present now will later be past, the order is rapidly fading. And the first one now will later be last, for the times they are a-changing. These words, written by singer-songwriter Bob Dylan, are timeless because they are about a timeless part of our existence, namely change. And I wonder how you think and feel about change. We have all experienced it. No one gets a pass on it. And if you're like me, you probably have a love-hate relationship with it. And a love-hate relationship with the truth that change is inevitable. I mean, think with me just for a moment about the changes that happen in and around us. Our seasons of life change. Ages change. Our bodies change. Our emotions change. Our minds and thoughts change rapidly. Our families, spouses, children, family members are ever-changing. Our homes and careers, they change. Our preferences change. Our clocks and calendars change. Our lives change whether we like it or not. Change is a part of us, and it is a part of our ever-changing world. But how should we think about change in the context of our faith? How should we think about change in the context of the ongoing Christian life, not only individually, but corporately, together? Today, we are going to be continuing our summer series through the letter to the Ephesians. And in chapters 1 through 3, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has told us who the church is, how the church is saved and made one new humanity, and third, what the church reveals before heaven and earth. And at the beginning of chapter 4, as we looked at last week, Paul made a transition in the letter. He moved from doctrine to duty and devotion. He moved from knowledge to practice. And he boldly exhorted the church in chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, to walk in a worthy manner, eager to maintain unity. And in those verses, he encouraged us to walk with all humility and gentleness, patience, loving tolerance toward one another, and to stand firm together in sound doctrine. And then he showed us that unity is intimately connected with maturity in the life of the church. Unity and maturity go together. And he encouraged us to walk and grow in maturity, to eagerly use the gifts that Christ has given us, to recognize the gift of church leadership, and that they are given to the church to equip the church for the work of ministry. And he encouraged the church to mature in Christ-likeness, doctrinal stability. He exhorted the church to speak the truth in love and to build one another up 
in love. And now in our passage this morning, Paul further instructs us on what it is to walk in a worthy manner. As one commentator put it, not just in unity, but in purity. And to walk in a worthy manner is to walk in newness of life. This brings us to our passage this morning. So if you have a Bible, please turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from under a seat near you. You can find the letter on page 917. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be walking through verses 17 to 32. You'll be helped to keep your Bible open to this passage this morning. Please follow along as I read. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry. And do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is God's word to the church. Thanks be to God. Let's say that together. Thanks be to God. Amen. I'm going to pray and then we're going to dive into our passage. Father, we ask now that you would speak to us from heaven through your word that is living and active. Lord, we do ask that we would not just know these things with our mind, but that we would practice them in heart and hand. And Lord, I ask that you would strengthen your weak servant now to proclaim your word with clarity. May the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord our rock, and our redeemer. It's in the name of Christ that we all pray. Amen. Amen. Well, to guide our time together, here's what you should write down in your notes. Here's the main idea and the outline for these verses in our time together this morning. Here it is. You are new. Live like it. You are new. Live like it. Paul makes this point and upholds it by answering how we are made new. We must put off the old 
and put on the new. This is what we see in verses 17 to 24. And how do we live like we are new? Well, we put away the old and we pursue a new and better way of living. We see this in verses 25 to 32. So put off, put on, put away, pursue. Let's get rolling. Point one, put off, put on. We see this in 17 to 24. And this will be my longer of the two points this morning. If we were to do a study of the words walk, path, road in Scripture, we would find that they form a theme. And that theme runs from the Old Testament all the way in to the New Testament. And the theme could be kind of summed up in, in this way. There are only two paths, two ways in this life. Psalm 1 calls them the path of righteousness and the path of the wicked. Proverbs calls them the path of wisdom and the path of foolishness. John calls them the path of light and the path of darkness. And Paul, picking up this theme here in chapter 4, at the beginning of it, and then continuing with it in our verses this morning, he writes this, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Here, Paul grounds his words not in his own authority, but in God's authority. He testifies, he speaks on behalf of God to the church as a witness in the Lord. And he tells the church to not walk as the Gentiles do. And this is key. We got to catch this. We must catch this. When he speaks of Gentiles here, he is not speaking of ethnicity or culture. He is speaking of the world. Those outside of Christ, not changed by the Spirit. Those outside the church who are not walking in a worthy manner, but in contrast are walking in an unworthy manner. Walking the way of the Gentile, the way of the world. And there are five characteristics of these people that are walking this way. Here in these verses. First, it says at the end of verse 17 and following through verse 19, that they walk in the futility of their mind. That word futility means purposelessness. The mind of those outside of God is purposeless and aimless and wandering. Second, they're also walking with a darkened understanding. These are blind people walking. Outside of the Spirit's illuminating work, the world is spiritually blind and in the dark. And that darkness infiltrates all of thought and life. Third, they are also walking in alienation from the life of God. The worldly are separated from God. They are the faraway ones, those with no hope outside of the Spirit's work. And they're strangers to the promise of God. This is mentioned back in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Fourth, the world walks in ignorance. They are the walking drunk. Foolishness is in them. It's captured their heart. And with that comes a skewed perception of reality. Fifth, they walk in callous living, actively giving themselves to sensuality, greed, and impurity. Have you ever gotten a callous on your hand or your foot? It's not a pleasant thought or picture or thing to experience. It's a part of the skin that gets hard, kind of numb, 
and seared to the touch. The life and conscience of those outside of God is callous. And it seeks me-centered desires in sex, money, and aspiration. They are spiritually impure. This list is not good. These are hard words, right? These are hard words. And this list is reminiscent of what Paul wrote back in chapter 2. This is Paul on repeat here. So let's make no mistake, these are the characteristics of the world, a life outside of the spirit, marked by foolishness, darkness, alienation, ignorance, callousness, and impurity. And we see these things in the world around us because the world loves darkness rather than light. And we should park here for a moment. There's nothing new under the sun. The bleak problems of yesterday are the bleak problems of today. The heart of the issue is the same. This is nothing new. So when we encounter the world, we should not fear and tremble. When the world does what the world does, we should not be surprised. I mean, pagans are going to peg. The worldly will continue to rage, to revel in debauchery, and to remain spiritually hard of heart and hard of hearing, and to walk the unworthy way unless the Spirit of God intervenes. So may we not be alarmists or terrified of the ways that the big bad world blows and blows and blows upon the church. We don't have to run for the hills or another state when the going gets tough and when the world does what it does around us. We don't have to fear because God will ultimately bring that way to an end. And he has put his people his church in a dark place, in a dark context to be his light, to be vessels of his light and his love and his life in the midst of darkness. Well, these verses, again, paint a dark picture of a dark way, but God. But God has made a way out of no way He has made a way out of no way. He has given us Jesus, a better way. And he changes everything for the people in Ephesus, the church there, and the people of Edgewood, and the church here. And this is incredible. Paul doesn't tell us about the works of Jesus here. No, he just holds up a person. Did you notice that in the text? This is the only time in Scripture where we see a statement like this. Verse 20, you learned Christ. And then he adds, assuming that you have indeed heard and were taught the truth that is in him. Here, Paul writes of learning the way of Jesus in contrast to the way of the world. And Jesus came to save the world, to save his people, the church. He came to save those who cannot save themselves by becoming a man and walking in a perfectly worthy way before God in our place. And he is, as he calls himself, the way, the truth, and the life. In contrast to the way of the world, there is a person, and brothers and sisters, he can be learned. Praise God. And we learn of him from his word, where we read of the person of Jesus and how he came to set free those enslaved to sin 
He came to give life to those who were dead. He came as light to those in darkness. He came to seek the lost. He came to heal the spiritually sick. He came to give sight to the spiritually blind. He came to restore the rebellious and the broken. He came to make friends of God's enemies. Brothers and sisters, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he has done all of these things, all of them, Isn't that incredible? Does that not move you? This is Jesus. Learn him. Behold him. Behold his person, his life, and his work in the gospel. There's no better person to learn in this life. He is the best news in the world. And so if you have not learned Christ and you bear the characteristics of the world mentioned above if you find your identity with the world and in the world, if you are not a Christian, then you are on a dangerous path leading to a dangerous place called hell. But God is inviting you this morning to learn Christ. Today is the day. He came for you, friend. He came for you. I pray that you would learn him and repent of your sins, all the ways that you've been walking in rebellion and word, thought, and action, and turn to him today. If you have questions about Jesus or a new life in him, I'll be standing in the back after the service. I would love to talk with you. You could also find someone in a seat near you. They would love to talk with you about that too. They would love that. Nothing more. Or you can call the office this week, schedule a meeting with one of the elders here. There's Nothing we would rather talk to you about than Jesus and new life in him. Nothing. Don't leave this place without learning and trusting in Christ alone for salvation. But Christians, church, if you have truly learned Jesus and seen Jesus by faith and have turned to him from sin and turned toward him and are following him, then you have been changed. And nothing can change that. As verses 22 through 24 say, when you learned Jesus, you learned to put off your old self. Look there with me. You learned to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And you have been renewed in the spirit of your mind. And you have put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, before we walk through these verses, you may be thinking, is Paul here, the same Paul here, at odds with the Paul back in Ephesians chapter 2, where he spoke of God making the spiritually dead alive and, and saving them and seeking them by grace alone, through the gift of faith alone, through the work of Christ alone. I thought Paul was clear on this already. This whole putting off and putting on things sounds a little bit like I'm responsible for my salvation. Paul's not speaking out of both sides of his mouth here. And we need to carefully look and slow down for a moment and carefully think about the doctrine of regeneration and the doctrine of conversion. The doctrine of regeneration and the doctrine of conversion to better understand these verses. So are you with me? Are are you with me? Here here we go. We learned in chapter 2 that salvation is fully of God. He causes Christians to be born again by grace and gospel. He gives life 
and faith. He regenerates dead people. He gives life to the dead, spiritual life to the spiritually dead. He is the sovereign author of salvation. And the putting off of the old man and the ways of the world and putting on the Jesus that we have learned and have heard of, the truth that we've seen in him, and repenting and believing by faith starts with God. But we must turn. We must turn in repentance and faith. In faith, we must about face and change course and walk in faith. This is called conversion. In regeneration, God gives new life. In conversion, God enables us to turn, put off and put on Christ and walk in new life by faith. Paul's regeneration and conversion recorded in Acts 9 is a picture of this. We don't have time to turn there, but it's worth checking out. And here's why this is important to us. Here's why this is important, particularly in regard to putting off the clothes of the world and putting on the new clothes of Christ. Here's why this is important for our Christian lives. Stay stay with me here. Stay with me. If we believe that change in faith is something that we produce, and if we believe that we are saved by the intensity of our faith, then, as it has been said, sincerity of faith becomes paramount. We begin to think of faith as a single act, a hand raised, a decision made, a card signed. And this leads people to rededicate their lives hundreds of times or simply give up on Christianity and give up on the faith when it doesn't feel good or the going gets tough. And this is one of the reasons we're seeing so much deconstruction within the church today. We haven't thought through these categories well of regeneration and conversion, what it is to turn and walk in God's direction by grace through faith. Brothers and sisters, if conversion is the process of change through repentance and faith, and that change was initiated by God's grace and regeneration, then we can look to Christ as the object and assurance of our faith. We could put off the old and put on the new, relying on Jesus to will and work in us. Praise him. If you're a Christian, then these verses, 22 through 24, are about you. They're about you. When we encounter Jesus and are saved, at that moment we take off our old clothes, stained by the world, and we put on new clothes. We put on Christ himself as we learn here once and for all. This putting off and putting on happens at the point of regeneration. And when we first respond to the gospel by grace, but then we must turn and walk God's direction in conversion. Oh, beloved, There is no such thing as a Christian who has met Jesus and has not been changed. It's impossible. You cannot encounter Jesus and not be changed. 
When we meet, learn, and declare Christ as Lord, we are declared in Christ and we are changed. We are dressed in him once and for all. And with that comes a change of mind, heart, life, and direction. So what does that change look like? Look with me at verses 23 to 24. We are told that the spirit of our old mind is exchanged for renewed, a new one, a, re, a new, renewed one. Lots of news there. Our robe is un, of unrighteousness is exchanged for a robe of Christ's righteousness. Our robe of unholiness is exchanged for a robe of Christ's holiness. We cannot put on this new self unless our thinking is changed. We cannot put off this new self unless put on this new self unless Christ dresses us. When we put on Christ, our minds are renewed and we are clothed in his righteousness and his holiness and our lives progressively reflect him more and more. This is what it is to be conformed to the image of Christ, not just individually, but corporately together as the body of Christ. And we begin to bear fruit of the spirit in our life. Now, there are many so-called Christians who are half-dressed and lukewarm. Many half-dressed, lukewarm Christians, chameleons that attempt to wear the clothes of the world and the clothes of Christ, like that's possible. These individuals profess Christ with word, but don't bear fruit in their lives. One pastor and dear friend put a short list together of descriptions about this type of person. They are excited about heaven, but bored of Christianity, really, and the local church. They like Jesus, but didn't sign up for the rest. Obedience, holiness, discipleship, and suffering. These individuals can't generally see the difference between what obedience is in love, or what's motivating obedience in love, or legalism. They're bothered by other people's sins more than their own. And they hold grace cheap and their own comfort costly. This is not the Christian life. This is not the way we learn and put on Christ. Rather, this is a spiritually lukewarm life, a life caught between two worlds, a caught, life between, a, a, a caught between two ways of Jesus and the world. So we should take stock. But if you are indeed a Christian, make no mistake that you will look to Jesus as your teacher of a better way. He will be your assurance. He will be your new clothes. And he will be your new identity. In summary, to learn and see Christ and to become a Christian is to belong to him, to put off the old self and its manner of life and put on the new self and the new manner of life. A change Life, a changed life, includes knowing him, growing in him, and walking with him, and walking with others in the context of a local church. This is the new self and the new life that Paul is speaking of here. But ultimately, putting off and putting on is just the beginning. Putting off and putting on is just the beginning, for the Christian life is one of constantly putting away the old way of foolishness and darkness and alienation and ignorance and callousness and impurity and pursuing a new way, Jesus' way of wisdom, light, union with God, knowledge, sensitivity toward others, and purity. And so after putting off and putting on, we are to put away and pursue this new way. So that brings us to point two. 
Point two, put away, pursue. 25 through 32. Let me read those verses once again for us. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. What are Christians known for? What are Christians known for? If, if we ventured to the, uh, to the South Hill Mall on a Saturday, or if we ventured to the Commons right down the street on a Saturday, and we just took a poll, 100 people, 100 random people. One, do you know any Christians? Two, what are they about? I'm fairly certain that we would find many surprising things, maybe not so surprising things, but here are two things that we would find out. First, I believe that we would find out that in the public eye, there is often no difference between the Christian person and the worldly person outside of a moral or ethical principle or certain political view. Second, I believe that we would find out that there are far too many Christians that are known by and for what they hate and not by what they love. And that should convict us. What are we known for? What what are our core characteristics? What sets us apart? Brothers and sisters, if Christ is in us, then new life is among us. If Christ is in us, new life is among us. And with this new life comes a new way of living. To put this succinctly, with a new and changed life comes a new lifestyle. What does that lifestyle look like? Well, we have five examples here. This list is not exhaustive. We have five examples here from the Holy Spirit. And these are applied primarily in the life of the church. We need to note this primarily in the life of the church, but also they have application in principle to our households and the way we relate to the world around us, okay? These are primarily for the church, but they're also for our home and for society. Here we go. First, we put away lying and pursue truth, verse 25. We put away anger and pursue peace, verses 26 to 27. We put away theft and pursue honest work, verse 28. We put away corrupt speech and pursue edifying speech, verses 29 through 30. First, we put away lying and pursue truth, verse 25. One commentator brings to our attention that this is a direct quote from Zechariah 8. Speak truth to one another. Did you know that that was quoted in the Old Testament? This is what we are to be about. Paul considered lying to be an epidemic in the church then, and, and it's an epidemic in the church now. Lying is so common, so common that we have kind of created different categories for it, like white lies, right? A little lie compared to a big lie. We're often far too comfortable with little lies as long as there's a larger bit of truth. But church, a lie is a lie, big or small. 
And lying kills our unity, it kills our maturity, and it kills our witness to the watching world. According to the Spirit, there's no place for lying in the Christian life. There's no place for lying in the church. So let us speak truth and pursue truth with our neighbor in word and deed, in the church and outside of it, recognizing that we who are members, particularly we who are members here at EBC, are connected, and we represent Christ, and we also represent one another. Here's the point. Our words and actions impact the whole. And so if we're living in falsehood, we should repent and ask the Holy Spirit to give us clarity and to walk in truth. With this struggle and any of the struggles that I'm about to list, you know, continuing uh, through this list here from Paul, uh, you should find another person in the church who is wise and godly and enter a discipleship relationship with them to talk through these things, to have accountability with these things for your spiritual health, but also the spiritual health of the church. In many ways, this list is a call to disciple one another, to help one another put away and pursue. Well, we are to put away lying and we are to pursue truth. And second, we are to put away anger and pursue peace, verses 26 to 27. In Psalm 4, verse 4, we read, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Paul's words echo the psalmist's words here. And it's fascinating that anger is not inherently sinful. Did you notice that? Anger itself is not inherently sinful, but it's what we do with our anger and how we treat others in our anger that matters the most. God is concerned with the object of our anger. So many, uh, as many of you know, um, about three months ago, my mom passed away, uh, rather tragically, and she, di she died because of a mistake made by a surgeon. Uh, a mistake that 60 days would, would later take her life. It was the most tragic thing I've ever watched and experienced in my life. And to be clear, I'm, I'm angry about that. I still deal with well-ups of anger about this. I often want to flip a table in anger over sin and the fall and death its impact on my family, my children. Is that wrong? But if we flip a table in the direction of another sinner, in my situation, if I flip the table in the direction of that surgeon, if we flip a table while cursing God or another, if we flip a table and then hold a grudge and seek revenge. Oh, that's an issue. That's an issue. We are to be angry and not sin. We should grieve and be angry about the reality of sin and the fall and death and its impact on those around us. It's okay to be anger about, to have anger about that. It's okay. We should grieve the impact of sin in our and ourselves, and our church, and the world around us. Well, the, the, the Spirit 
through the hand of Paul, presses on here. He says, we're not to let the sun go down on our anger. A handful of years back, I asked uh, a married couple, friend of mine, I said, hey, what are the secrets to a successful marriage? Give me the scoop. They've been married for like 80 years. So tell, tell, me, tell me what's going on. Give me, give me the scoop. First thing she said out of her mouth, we don't go to bed angry. We don't go to bed angry. Now, is Paul saying that we should literally not go to bed nor sleep until our anger has subsided? (laughs) Might we think more clearly in the morning? We need to be careful. We shouldn't overread this text or overprescribe or unhelpfully read it in rigid ways. But there is an encouragement here to use bedtime as an opportunity to pray, to ask the Lord to forgive you, to be reconciled with others, to use that as a cue to walk in forgiveness. Ultimately, we should be known, not by what we hate, but we should be known for seeking forgiveness, reconciliation, and peace quickly for the sake of unity, maturity, and the pursuit of godliness in our lives. We are to actively kill anger gone wild so that we don't give the devil an opportunity to cripple our hearts. This is for our good and the good of others. If we have unresolved anger, this would be a good time to confess that, to repent. Today is the day. Let's walk in newness of life. We're to put away anger and pursue peace. And third, we are to put away theft and pursue honest work. One commentator and historian tells us that stealing was typical in the first century in the region of Ephesus. It was a part of general culture. And it's a part of ours as well in a variety of ways. There are opportunities all around us to steal, from stealing of others' time, resources, intellectual property. The opportunity to steal is all around us. But what's Paul's prescription for theft here? Honest work. Honest work. So that we can provide for ourselves and give to others. And so the church ought to be a place where we help those without work find work. I know of a couple brothers in the church now that are looking for a job. If you have a job, reach out to the church office this week. We'd love to help those brothers find work. We're to actively serve one another by giving of our time and resources to those in need. You know, God is diametrically opposed to stealing. It violates his word and standard. And so if we are stealing in any area of life, let's repent and live honestly to put away theft, pursue honest work for our good and the good of our neighbor, those in the church. Fourth, we put away corrupt corrupt speech and pursue edifying speech. This is what we see in 29 through 30. Jesus said, from the heart, the mouth speaks. And just as Paul encouraged us to speak truth and love earlier in this chapter and to live with humility, patience, and loving tolerance, here he is saying, put away words of filth and death and instead speak words of purity and life to one another. We are known by our words. We are known by the way we speak. And church, our words are either filled with life or they're filled with death. They are building up the body or they are tearing the body down. How do you use your words? May you use your words to build one another up in truth and grace and mutual edification. We are to put away corrupt speech and pursue edifying speech. These four examples 
remind us that there is no such thing as a private sin, right? All sin is social. I'm going to say that again. All sin is social. We sin against God vertically, then we sin against one another, either, either uh, in the immediate or we do down the road eventually. And God is grieved by our sin. And this is where Paul goes next, verse 30. He says that God is grieved when we engage in lying, anger, theft, and corrupt speech. And these are just four examples of many. Well, we must remember, we must remember that Paul is writing to local churches then and now. And so when our life individually and corporately is marked by these examples, the smile of God is not upon us. And the spirit who is the sealer of our redemption, as Paul says in the text, is grieved. These verses are really heavy, aren't they? Do, do you feel the weight of these? The, the imperatives here should, should cause us to sink in our chair I know, or, or sink behind the, the pulpit. These are, these are serious. These are heavy. But these words are meant to sober us and not scare us. They're meant to sober us and not scare us. And when we fail in any of these areas, which we inevitably will, may we flee to Jesus, the one that we learned, remember, that he just spoke of, that Paul just spoke of. Jesus, the one that we learned, and his gospel, looking to him for mercy and for grace, remembering that if we have indeed put off our former self and its way of life and put on the new, that he is at work in us and he is at work among us. And so if we see changes that need to be made in our lives, let's remember that real change can only come through Christ. Real change can only come through him. Change is not a self-improvement plan. It's not something that we do on our own. It's a project that we do in community. Change is a community project. So if you're struggling with putting away sin and pursuing this new life, then seek out another person today. As I mentioned a moment ago, seek out a person to walk with you in discipleship that you can walk with that helps you follow Jesus day by day by day. We can't do this on our own. If you don't know who to talk to, if you need to be paired with someone else, reach out to the church office. We would love to connect you with someone else in the church who can walk with you in any of these areas. Brothers and sisters, this passage should not fuel works righteousness nor legalism. Should not fuel works righteousness, like we can work for our salvation, or legalism. We cannot do any of these things in our own strength. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. And we need the work of the Spirit in our hearts and our minds, continuously renewing us and pointing us toward the finished work of Christ in the gospel. So let's pray to that end, church. Let's put away the old and pursue a new Christ-like way together, in our life together. Well, Paul brings this section of the letter to a close with a fantastic summary. Look there with me, verses 31 to 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Ephesians 4.32 is our marriage verse. Between myself and Kate, it's also, it's also our family verse. Not sure if you have a life verse or a family verse or a marriage verse or a church verse, but I recommend this one. I recommend it. 
The Spirit makes his final appeal here to the church to put away the old life, marked by bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, slander and malice, and to pursue kindness, tenderheartedness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness as God in Christ has forgiven us. This is what we are to be about. And isn't it beautiful that Paul closes this section with verse 32, closes it with the gospel. He reminds us that the only way that we can forgive, it's almost like the Spirit knows that we have a forgiveness problem. It's almost like Paul knows that we have a forgiveness problem. He says, this is how Paul ends the section, with the gospel. He reminds us that the only way that we can forgive is if we are walking in the light of forgiveness in Christ. It's the only way. So again, let us learn from the Spirit here. We can only do the do's. We can only do the Christian do's upon what's been done in Christ. We can't do this work apart from him and his work until we pass or he returns. So may we return to these words often as a reminder. May we be known by these words and realities. And may these words characterize our life together. Here in the church, in our homes, and how we engage others in the world around us. Well, I want to end our time together by offering just a quick exercise to you. It's a brief exercise. If you're married, ask your spouse to participate in this. If you are single, invite a Christian to speak into this, to meet with and to speak into this, to go through this exercise with you. If you are a child, then ask your parents to do this exercise with you. Are you ready? Here's the exercise. And I picked this up from a friend of mine's pastoral mentor. It's not original to me. I think this is fantastic though. Today, this, after, this afternoon or evening, take each of these four examples and the summary statement in 31 through 32. So pretty much open your Bible back to what we read this morning, what we looked at this morning. And then reflect out loud with them the areas of your life that have the smile or frown of the Holy Spirit. And then where you fall short, confess your sins, seek reconciliation if necessary, and invite your partner to pray with you. Be assured, be assured that the Holy Spirit will attend your conversation with great joy, with great joy. Well, with that, have you put off the old self and put on the new? Have you put away the things of the world and are you pursuing a new and better way? What path are you walking? What are you about? What changes need to be made in your life? If you are in Christ, beloved, if you are in Christ, if you are walking in ongoing repentance and faith, if God has truly changed your heart and renewed your mind, then you are new. You are new. The old has passed away. The new has come. So with the Lord's help, live like it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, that it is living and active and sharp and pierces through bone and marrow so that we may be fashioned and refashioned again and again into the image of your son, Jesus. And Lord, we do ask that what we have not, that you would give us, that what we know not, that you would teach us, 
and that what we are not, that you would make us for our good and the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in the name of Christ that we all pray and all of God's people said, amen, amen.